Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Tonight, LA versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? Shipping is the virtual lifeblood of both Los Angeles and Seattle, and the ports of both cities claim intimate and expanding trade with the Pacific Rim. Does either region enjoy a distinct advantage? How does the public-private nature of the ports affect their operation? As environmental regulations become ever more stringent, can either city handle looming competition from Canada, Mexico, and the Panama Canal? Socalo gathered together a distinguished panel, University of California San Diego political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach to discuss and dissect this timely topic. Presented in conjunction with the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West before a live audience at the Skirball Cultural Center as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, we start with Steve Erie. Thank you. Look, this, this is a fabulous panel. You never think of Los Angeles and Seattle as your paired comparison. You think of San Francisco. You think of New York. You think about Shanghai. But you don't think about Seattle and, and L.A. And yet, a hundred years ago, when these cities in the progressive era were building municipal port systems, municipal water systems, they were in constant communication with one another and power systems about how to do these kinds of things. Well, they've turned from friendly to not-so-friendly competitors. And what we're talking about tonight, and we've set it up as a sparring match, LA versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? We're now talking about major rivals for Pacific Rim trade in what has been called the Asian century. The ports of San Pedro Bay. I've discovered that the locals down there, it's pronounced Pedro, not Pedro. The ports of San Pedro Bay, Los Angeles and Long Beach, the ports of Seattle and Tacoma are the nation's first and third busiest container seaport complexes with New York, New Jersey sandwiched in between and the nation's leading gateways for Pacific Rim trade. Today, these gateways are being sorely tested. The challenges ranging from economic downturn, all you have to do is read the pages of the LA Times, and soaring fuel costs which are dampening container trade, at least coming from east to west. It's gone up from west to east, right, because of the cheap American dollar and demands on the other side, to growing environmental and community challenges to port operations and development because these are port complexes in border areas. You're finding new challenges from Canadian ports and from Mexican ports both current and those being developed. And of course, the granddaddy of all, a hundred years later, the Panama Canal II, the expansion of the Panama Canal to open in 2014, which will open up in terms of the size of the ships, direct shipments from Asia, from the Pacific Rim to the Gulf States and the East Coast ports. Our distinguished panelists will address these and other looming challenges to the nation's leading Pacific Rim gateways. Let me introduce them. I should first say, we have one Norwegian-American up here who has been knighted by the King of Norway. There are only five such knighted individuals in North America. This is David Olson. But we understand the King has just knighted a penguin, so I'm not <laughs> quite sure what all this means. We have Tom O'Brien, Irish-American, from a place where I spent the two winters of my discontent, Albany, New York. And to balance the panel, I am half Norwegian-American and nearly half Irish-American. But all of us share a special love for ports. David J. Olson, Professor Emeritus, the Department of Political Science, University of Washington, 
inaugural holder of the Harry Bridges Endowed Chair in Labor Studies. Professor Olson has written extensively on the governance and accountability of U.S. ports and on West Coast port development and challenges, particularly with respect to the Port of Seattle. He has served as a consultant to the Port of Seattle on a variety of issues. Thomas O'Brien is the Director of Research for the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State University Long Beach. He received his Master's and Ph.D. in Policy, Planning and Development from the University of Southern California. His research concerns port operations and challenges and intermodal goods movement, particularly with respect to the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. We're going to focus on a couple of really big issues before we open it up to Q&A with the audience. We're going to start with a brief, and I will be the timekeeper, a brief overview of the two ports to sort of bring you folks up to speed. Then we're going to start looking at environmental challenges. California has passed a whole set of new rules with respect to truck operations, to vessel fuels, to you know how they're powered in ports. We know that Seattle is a green metropolis, so we're going to be talking about, in a sense, right, what is happening environmentally with respect to these ports. And then we're going to turn to competitive challenges, both cross-border in terms of Vancouver and now Prince Rupert, which I guess is the big new port in terms of Canadian-British Columbia development. We'll look at the challenges from Mexican ports, Ensenada and Punta Colonet, which is on the drawing boards. And these are major, major, major port development plans. And then, of course, talk about the Panama Canal expansion. And then, finally, we will conclude with kind of the future of these port complexes and, right, their role as Pacific Rim trade and gateway centers. But first, a little bit about the ports, a little bit about what they do, what they are, their governance, their market, etc. challenges. We'll start with our hometown of Los Angeles. We'll start with Los Angeles Long Beach Port Complex, and then we'll talk about the Pacific Northwest. Tom. Thanks, Steve. I hope that, that nearly half Irish doesn't affect the outcome of the, uh, the debate between the two cities. <laughs> Fully Norwegian versus uh, nearly half Irish. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks, for everyone, for coming out. It's interesting to be in an environment where the, the issue is L.A. Long Beach versus Seattle because I sort of exist in a world, for the most part, where it's Los Angeles versus Long Beach. We tend to get a little myopic, but that's, that's the way it is. The two ports are competitors, albeit neighbors. Increasingly, over the last couple of years, you start hearing them be referred to as the San Pedro Bay Port Complex, and you hear themselves referring to it as the San Pedro Bay Port Complex. And I think that's a function of a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. Pressures, both internal and external, that suggest that it's to the port's best interest to put a singular face forward. The Port of Los Angeles is 100 years old as of last year, and the Port of Long Beach will celebrate its 100th anniversary in another decade, another 10 years had railroad interests had, had their way, we would actually be talking not about the ports of San Pedro Bay, but the port of Santa Monica, which is uh, initially where the, the proposal for the, for the development of a port in this region uh, was to be located. But the desire of the federal government to contribute financially to the port development in San Pedro, and then subsequently transfer of, of land control from the railroads to the states, contributed to the development of the, of the two ports where they are. What's interesting in talking about these ports versus Seattle is, I think, the influence of state of the state of California in operations. The two ports actually operate at the behest of the state. They're trustees of the state. And they operate under a 1911 law called State Tidelands Trust Law, which makes for a very interesting environment. The ports are animals of, of city government, but they're protected because of this, of this relationship to the state, and that sometimes works to their benefit and sometimes works to their, to their disadvantage. It means that the revenues that they generate stay within the port complex. The, the money can't be taken and put into the general city coffers, although there have been attempts to do so, which we might talk about, but not successfully. But because of their function as trustees of the state, the state has an influence 
in a role in the way that in the way they behave to a certain extent. And I think the role that that state government and and legislative policy has played in and encouraging the ports to take actions in the arena of the environment is because of this, of this long-term relationship that the, that the ports have had to the state. You'll also be, I think, hearing from David the difference in the way port policy is developed. At the two ports, port commissioners are appointed by, by their respective mayors. It's different than other places where, uh, like Seattle, where, uh, where the commissioners are elected. I think the other thing that's, that's very interesting is the way that sort of local city government has played, has played a role. Given the, the size, the geographic scope of the city of Los Angeles, clearly port interests are important, but they don't dominate city life, both politically and economically, the way that they do in Long Beach. Thank you, Professor Erie and Dr. O'Brien. It's a great pleasure for me to be here, and uh, I'm very impressed, given what's happening in St. Paul tonight that you choose to spend your time. As former Governor Al Smith of New York once commented, there's nothing so dry except possibly for the 18th Amendment, which dealt with prohibition of alcohol, as talking about ports. Well, we're going to try to disabuse you of that idea. Ports are incredibly important entities, and you can go back historically to the turn of time and see how that works. It's because they offer so many positive impacts on the communities that spawn them, from creating jobs to creating businesses to creating economic well-being in the locale. But they also have negative externalities, negative impacts, the air pollution, the water pollution, the light, and the sight pollution, the congestion. It's all familiar to you. So the question to me is, how do you balance out these positive attribute supports alongside the negatives and try to mitigate or to address them? And that's largely what we're going to be doing. You're listening to L.A. versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? With UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. I'm Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O. L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. I'm Marco Werman. Next time on The World, we're in Afghanistan. I'm Quill Lawrence in Kabul, where people feel the Taliban insurgency closing in. Nearly seven years since the U.S. intervention, three of the four main roads out of the capital are no longer considered safe to travel, and Afghans fear their government's reach is shrinking. Who's winning the war in Afghanistan next time on The World? Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. I'm David Lazarus. Coming up on Monday, it was July 26, 1943 that it first arrived. What was it? Smog. Pat Morrison talks with journalist Chip Jacobs and William J. Kelly about their new book, Smog Town, a look at decades of reaction to this particular airborne pollution and what do you do about it. All that's coming up on 89.3 KPCC, Southern California Public Radio. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. I'm Laura Villalpando. 
This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to LA versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? With UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. I have three short vignettes on ports that I think helps us understand them. In the 19th century, all ports in the United States were privately owned and operated with one exception, Port of San Francisco in 1854. And that was because of trying to rationalize harbor development after the 49ers. But for the rest, they were privately owned and operated. By the middle of the 20th century, all ports are publicly owned and operated in the United States. So here you've got the private and the public play uh, that's at work. Secondly, most countries, most nation states have a minister of ports or a, a director of harbors. The United States has no such national entity. Instead, it's the locale, it's the region, that uh, develops uh, these ports, that builds in the kind of competitive environment that we're uh, talking about. Um, so that's a second dimension, is the local nature of what we're talking about. A third dimension is the character of ports as public enterprise. They're public in the sense that commissioners are appointed or elected they are publicly subsidized. All ports everywhere for all time have always been publicly subsidized. They borrow money from the municipal bond market, etc. There are these public attributes. But there are also enterprises. They are competing in an economic marketplace for the movement of cargo and maximizing the benefits of the movement of that cargo. And it's this yin and yang of port authorities that they're simultaneously public entities engaged in a private marketplace. And the curious thing to those of us who are students of public administration is it's a zero-sum game. The more you push on the public attributes, calling for accountability, calling for public control, the less able they are to operate in the competitive marketplace. The more you push the competitive marketplace, the less they're able to be accountable. I just want to mention the way I try to understand port authorities, and at the end of which, in another minute or two, I will give my projection about who's going to win this fight, Seattle or, or Los Angeles. I think it's important to try to understand the behavior of ports by looking at two dimensions. The first of which is, how many competitors are there in their hinterland? So you go to the north into Puget Sound, and the Port of Seattle and Port of Tacoma exist within a dozen ports that are serving ocean-going commerce. You come to the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's a half a dozen ports that are serving ocean-going commerce. In the 500 miles between San Francisco and San Diego, there are two ports, L.A. and Long Beach. What this does is to give oligopolistic powers to the two and it places the dozen in a much more competitive environment. My last point here is, you, besides understanding the composition of the hinterland, as we've just described it, what's the marketplace within which they exist? Mm. L.A. and Long Beach, measured by population, number of businesses, value of uh, throughput cargo, is twice as large as the Bay Area. The Bay Area is twice as large as the Puget Sound. This creates an environment where two out of every three container boxes passing through the port of uh, Seattle and the port of Tacoma are discretionary cargo. They can go wherever they want. They don't have to come there. When you contrast that with L.A. and Long Beach because of the tremendous a number of goods that are being produced here and consumed here, that's captive cargo. That has to come here or originate from here. Given that the Port of Seattle's, okay, now we've got to get one measure in here because we're going to be talking about it all afternoon. TEUs, 20-foot equivalent units, is the standard measure of containers that are being shipped. So the total containers through the port of uh, Los Angeles last year was 8.4 million 
and in Long Beach it was 7.6 million. In Seattle it was less 1.9 million, and in Tacoma 1.7 million. And that's a function of captive versus discretionary cargo and this huge consuming and producing environment in greater Los Angeles area. If you were a separate country, you would rank 13th largest economy in the world. So if the question before us today is, who's going to win in the future of this fight? You have won. I concede. <laughs> and we'll put some caveats on that at the end of the discussion. David, David, thank you. Just one quick follow-up question. The, the governance in Seattle, if you can just mention a little bit relative to what Tom said, Okay, the, and whether it makes a difference. These ports are a product of the progressive movement, and the progressive movement uh, fueled by the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, they really believed in public control, and they believed that the public election of commissioners was superior to their appointment. So this is a big difference between L.A. and uh, Seattle. There are 76 port authorities in the state of Washington. All of their commissioners are elected. The Harbor Board in L.A. and in Long Beach is uh, appointed by the mayor, confirmed by the uh, city council. The further north you go on the west coast, the more operating-oriented the ports are. The further south you go, the more landlord they are. It's a difference in the way they operate in their business. So those are the main governmental differences between the two. Between the two. Well, what about the environmental challenges facing these two port complexes. As I said, California has passed, right, recently a set of laws. They're being implemented, and we have, you know, a green mayor, very green mayor here in Los Angeles, pledged, right, to no net increase in emissions at the ports. The problem with the ports, as David pointed out, concentrated costs, dispersed benefits. The benefits economic, particularly for a port like Los Angeles and also Long Beach and Seattle, is the benefits are spread not only over the region, but nationwide because the land bridge, the rail connection in Chicago and to places east. So the constituency for port operation, competitiveness, and development also tends to be very diffuse and spread out. The constituency opposing port expansion, arguing for environmental mitigation, is concentrated. It's local, it's political, it's the neighborhoods. Let's talk a little bit about those kinds of challenges, right, that are facing the ports, starting with Los Angeles and Long Beach. Tom. Thanks. Yeah, to sort of reemphasize a couple of things that David said, you know, essentially 40% of anything that's bought on a store shelf in this country comes through the ports of LA and Long Beach, right? We are, what comes into, into our two ports is roughly 35% of what comes in along the entire west coast of North America, including the Canadian ports. It's tremendous volumes. The numbers that, that were, were thrown out here, last year between the two ports in the, in the range of 15 and a half million TEUs coming in here, has been a result over the past several years of, of double-digit growth in the number of containers that came through on an annual basis. Growing at an annual rate greater than the capacity of most ports in the U.S. So essentially, L.A. and Long Beach was adding a new port every year over the past six or seven years. Now, last year was a little different because of the, because of the economy. But that's, that's the challenge, and that's what's driving the environmental concerns. I sort of think of about 1999 and 2000 as a watershed year uh, when it comes to environmental issues and, and the port complex. Ports are economic engines. They, they drive local economy. There's a half a million jobs in the region that are attributable to international trade. And up until about the early part of this century, economic benefits outweighed environmental impact. And ports actually sort of flew under the radar screen. And then I think a couple of things happened. In 1999, you had a, uh, the release of a study by the South Coast Air Quality Management District, which looked at incidences of, of cancer rates and exposure in the South Coast Basin. And there was a famous map that came out of it that showed this orange blob in and around the 710 corridor and the ports of LA and Long Beach. 
And that became known as, a, as the diesel death zone. And when you start you know, talking in public meetings and community meetings at, around, around tables where governmental officials sit, it's hard to start arguing against a diesel death zone. And, that's always been, and, and, and since that time, we've actually had more studies and gained more knowledge about the impacts of trade on public health, particularly, as Steve said, localized. Those impacts are localized. Then we had the 2002 port lockout. Over the last labor negotiations, you had cargo backed up, and that raised the profile of goods movement industry in a way that I think was not welcomed by the industry. You had the complex conflicts over the development of the 710 corridor, and all of this sort of coalesced. And then you had, uh, I think, probably the culminating activity was, was the, the lawsuit filed by the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, over the opening of the China shipping terminal at the Port of Los Angeles. It was filed over the, the validity of the environmental review process, and the environmental lawsuit won. And it forced some changes in behavior on the way the, the ports and the terminals operate. The, the terminal accepted a series of environmental regulations, including what we call cold ironing, which is the requirement that the ship actually plugs into shoreside power when it's at berth instead of, instead of burning uh, bunker fuel. And that changed everything. That was when we had a turn. And you could no longer argue economic drivers, the economic engine argument, without discussing the environmental impacts. And elected officials realized they had power in this and started mandating and saying, if you want the public sector financing, if you want the approval through the environmental review process, you're going to have to address the environmental mitigations. I want to talk just a little bit about the truck programs. These have been in the news and uh, somewhat controversial. Sure. One thing that's, that's come out of all of this is that the ports and the, and the terminals, and as, as, as was discussed here, in, in L.A. and Long Beach, the ports of L.A. and Long Beach are landlord ports. They enter into long-term leases in the range of 30 years with a series of different companies who operate the terminals there are 13 different containerized terminals at the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, but there are 50 different leaseholds at the two ports, you know, ranging from petroleum, coke, a whole host of products, automobiles. And so what, what all of this pressure has, has done is, is forced the terminal operators themselves to act. They don't like state oversight. They're not crazy about any state mandate that requires them to pay for goods through container fees that might be taken outside of the region and go to Sacramento. So what they've done is essentially decided to pursue a path of voluntary environmental management. And in 2006, the the San Pedro Bay ports, not the Port of LA independently, not the Port of Long Beach independently, the two ports together jointly adopted a Clean Air Action Plan, sort of to, to forestall further local and state action. And the big piece that's come out of this, the one that everyone's talking about, is the clean truck program. The most visible, the highest profile polluters, emitters, are the trucks, although it's probably the ships that are are the gross polluters, but they're they're international flag carriers. They're not the easiest segment of the industry to touch from, from a regulatory standpoint. So the clean truck program is phasing in new truck standards. As of October 1st, any and this, this, it doesn't seem like this is a profound change, but it is. Uh, trucks built before 1989 will not be allowed to enter the port complex. And changes will be phased in over time. And the way this is going to be regulated is trucking companies and truck drivers will have to get a concession in the, in the same way that taxi drivers get concessions to, to operate and serve the airport. Truck, truck drivers will have to get a concession to serve either of the two ports. Getting a concession is dependent upon the, the cleanliness of the fleet, until the final regulations are phased in, the uh, dirty vehicles are going to have to pay a, a dirty vehicle fee. This is, this is interesting because it's revealing a lot of the fault lines that are present in the goods movement industry. The two ports agree on the phased-in standards with regard to the vehicles. However, and this is the big but, the port of Los Angeles, when it adopted the, the regulations, said that to get a concession a trucking company has to use employee drivers. The industry as a whole works on independent owner-operators, independent truckers, who contract with the trucking companies. The port of Long Beach has adopted a standard that does not require it. 
next week, September 8th, a request for an injunction by the American Trucking Associations is going to be heard in court to see whether the plan can even move forward. The Trucking uh, Association is arguing that the port's decision to involve themselves in setting up a trucking concession program essentially violates federal law because international trade and, and interstate commerce is the purview of the federal government. The ports are moving forward with fits and starts, so stay tuned. You're listening to L.A. versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? With UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. This is Socalo. I'm Laura Villalpando. Check out our events around town. On Tuesday, September 16th, journalist Benjamin Skinner will speak with A Crime So Monstrous, face-to-face with modern-day slavery. Worldwide, there are more slaves today than ever before, and journalist Ben Skinner has gone inside the modern slave trade like no one else. In his first book, A Crime So Monstrous, Skinner weaves a vivid narrative of slaves, traffickers, survivors, and liberators. With years of reporting in such places such as Haiti, Sudan, India, Eastern Europe, and the Netherlands, he has produced a vivid testament of moving reportage on one of the great evils of our time, including countless numbers held in hidden bondage right here in Los Angeles. And on Tuesday, September 23rd, Jerry Sullivan, editor and publisher of the Los Angeles Garment and Citizen, moderates How Dangerous is the Garment Industry? with Kimmy Lee of the Garment Worker Center, a downtown-based advocacy group, Garment Contractors Association Executive Director Joe Rodriguez, and Michael Kang, owner of the Caribe Fashion Label in the Garment District. Both evenings are sponsored in part by the California Wellness Foundation. Admission to these and all Socolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment to L.A. versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? With UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Programming is supported by KCET-TV, the only Southern California public television channel where you can find Tavis Smiley, Hugh Hauser, Frontline, and all the public television programs you love. Next time on Day to Day. Dance instructor Michael Songer is a second-generation German, but like others in Germany with foreign backgrounds, he's treated like an outsider. They think Turkish youngster tries to be a gangster. They even don't know that I finished my university and that I'm a businessman. A growing group of citizens tries to fit into Germany's future next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. With all the attention on the presidential election November 4th, it's easy to miss all the important initiatives on the California ballot. I'm Larry Mantle. Next time on Air Talk, a look at Proposition 8, the proposed constitutional ban on same-sex marriage. We'll hear representatives of the pro and con sides and take your calls as well. It's Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. KPCC is Southern California's most listened-to public radio news station. That large audience comes to KPCC for NPR News, award-winning local news, and public radio's favorite shows like Car Talk and A Prairie Home Companion. That large audience is active and engaged in the city. Your organization or company can reach that large audience by underwriting on KPCC. To find out how, send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. And thanks.
I'm Laura Villalpando. This is Zocalo Radio, the on-air home of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to LA versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? With UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. David, how about Green Seattle? What's yeah. happening? Well, you know, uh, Dr. O'Brien's uh, discussion of the Clean Air Action Plan that uh, has gone forward in the San Pedro port area is it, it's really a very impressive set of movements on the environmental front. With respect to the Pacific Northwest, a similar program called the Clean Air Strategy has been adopted by a consortium of Pacific Northwest ports, Port of Tacoma, Port of uh, Seattle, and the Port of Vancouver, British Columbia. They're recognizing that the air shed that is being despoiled isn't confined to the Puget Sound. It extends across the border into the Georgian Straits and the Georgian Basin. So you got, for the first time, an international accord about decreasing emissions, about addressing the particulars of the causes of pollution. So the ship's going cold iron and having to hook up to the electric uh, grid. With respect to the rail, there is the use of alternative fuels that are less polluting. With respect to the truck, there's a huge problem in the Seattle area where the dray trucks uh, store their cabs in the neighborhood uh, section of Seattle called Georgetown. And the Port of Seattle has identified Terminal 10 as the place where they will be stored when they're not in the drayage operation and getting them out of the neighborhood, out of uh, the Georgetown streets, and decreasing the amount of pollution in that uh, particular neighborhood. Uh, so that's going forward, and there are, with respect to vehicles on the terminal itself, it's movement to uh, biofuels to replace the diesels. So this is a, an airshed that extends 100 miles from the south of Puget Sound to the border and another 150 miles from the border to the uh, top of the Georgia Straits. It recognizes that you can't clean up the air in one section and not do it in another section if you're going to be effective in addressing it. I would say that in comparison to the uh, Clean Air Action Plan of L.A. and Long Beach, that... Uh, Seattle, Tacoma, and Vancouver are not as far along. But it's interesting that there are some real problems that the Clean Air Action Plan are going to have to address. You know, these owner-operators, when they're buying trucks, they're buying from the very bottom. They can get a truck for $16,000. If you're going to move up to trucks that haven't been produced prior to 1989 or prior to 2007 as these kick in, you're looking at $140,000, $150,000 vehicles. And if you move the owner-operators into employees, you know the first step that's going to occur. It's going to be the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, will try to organize these employees, which they can't do as long as they are owner-operators. The implications of that are profound for power relationships on the terminal. So... In sum, I think that L.A. and Long Beach are doing more. Perhaps the problem is greater than in the Pacific Northwest, although there are significant steps being taken. Isn't it interesting? Because, you know, the heart and soul of the labor movement on the West Coast back 100 years ago was San Francisco in the Pacific Northwest. And, of course, Los Angeles was the open shop town. You know, it's amazing 100 years later to see how things have played out. Let's turn to competitive challenges. I mean, we've got a Southern California port complex. We've got a Pacific Northwest complex, but they're right at borders. And we're starting to see challenges from the Mexican ports in Baja, both current and planned, and the same in the Vancouver Prince Rupert port plans 
with respect to the Canadians. And of course, the long-term challenges of what happens after the Panama Canal is expanded, the larger ships, the direct sea route from the Pacific Rim to the Gulf Coast ports and to the East Coast ports. Let's talk about some of those competitive challenges, starting with Tom. It's interesting. Over the past couple of years, as we've seen tremendous growth, ports not just only on on the West Coast uh, of North America, but throughout the country have tried tried to position themselves as being congestion-free in comparison to L.A. Long Beach. And this all stems from sort of 2004 when, you know, we grew at an, an alarming rate, not alarming, but we grew at an enormous rate and we weren't prepared. We didn't have the labor on the docks. We didn't have the labor at the rail yards. And as a result, you saw some, some traffic, you know, moving, moving elsewhere. There's a sense that there's an opportunity for ports near Ensenada, a place called Punta Colonet, and then a place called Lazaro Cardenas, further south, to draw traffic some of this discretionary traffic that's not coming to L.A. Long Beach, but that might be destined for the center part of the U.S., the Chicago rail yards. And we also have a lot of traffic that uses uh, what's called a land bridge, traffic that is coming here on ships that are currently too big to go through the Panama Canal. So traffic is uh, goods are offloaded, sent across country by a combination of truck and rail, and then put on another ship in New York, New Jersey, and, and going on to Europe. Well, the ports in Mexico say that we can capture some of that traffic coming through a less congested port, sending it directly up by rail to Kansas City and Chicago and serve the same purpose. The problem is is the infrastructure at this point. A bit is going out, or it actually has been let, for Punta Colonet for development. And they're talking about a terminal in a uh, complex in the range of about 2 million TEUs. So again, you have that issue. It's, it, it might draw some traffic, but it would be relatively small in comparison to the capacity of Los Angeles and Long Beach. The problem is, though, that all of these other ports that rely upon discretionary traffic are much more vulnerable to, to fluctuations in, in economics. So I'm somewhat skeptical. The other thing is that even if you build the rail infrastructure on the Mexican side, you need the cooperation of the the railroads that control the border crossings on the U.S. side, which are primarily the the Union Pacific and and the Burlington Northern. And those have not been the railroads that have been most invested financially in studying because they would not benefit directly from the railings to to Chicago. It's, It's Kansas City Southern that's been most interested. And I think the final point is that the opening of the Panama Canal makes the issue less critical. I don't think L.A. Long Beach will be as concerned about Punta Colonet as it will be with the growing capacity of places like Savannah and Charleston, Savannah, which grew 20% last year. I think that uh, all ports on the West Coast are in jeopardy. And uh, if we are to learn a lesson about this, it's important to recognize what the Port of San Francisco did as the number one uh, port through the 30s and 40s and 1950s. They made a bad decision. They bet on the lighter off ship not the container revolution, and they lost. Nine out of every ten ships that came under the Golden Gate Bridge prior to the container revolution went to San uh, San Francisco. Nine out of every ten today goes to Oakland. Ben Nutter made a gamble on the container box, and it worked. So here are the ways in which ports on the West Coast are vulnerable, and I'll pay more attention to the Pacific Northwest. First, Tacoma and Seattle are in enormous competition. Seattle gets a shipping line that calls, and Tacoma takes it away by underpricing their services. So Sealand switched in 1985, and a series of five leading up to NYK switched this last year. So that's one form of competition is within region, and it's because of the characteristics that I outlined earlier of the nature of the hinterland and the nature of the marketplace. A second uh, competitive threat is from the Port of Vancouver. In 1985, the Port of Vancouver transshipped 283,000 TEUs. Last year, it transshipped 2.3 million TEUs. Seattle transshipped 1.8 million last year. So this is an enormous increase in the container traffic through Port of Vancouver. And that is underwritten by the national government of Canada that views that transshipment as a national purpose. Now let's go 500 miles to the north, to Port Prince Rupert. This is a 
a port where the ca Canadian government is uh, investing massively, not only on the terminal, but also on the, the CN, the Canadian National Railroad, which is a national-owned railroad in the rolling stock and in the rail bed. They will be shipping, they already are, this last calendar year, they shipped 500,000 TEUs. They project moving to 2 million TEUs within four years and 4 million TEUs within six years. So look at this. If the container box leaves Yokohama and it comes through Prince Rupert and it's shot down through the Canadian National Railroad and ends up in Chicago, that takes 12 days. If the same box is coming out of Yokohama and it comes to L.A. or Long Beach, that takes 12 days. That's the difference. Prince Rupert is a day quicker from the Asian uh, shipping lines than Seattle. It is two and a half days quicker than San Pedro. This is, a, this is an important threat. Lastly, the all water route of the Northwest Passage above the Northwest Territories has been ice-free four months of each of the last two, three years. It is projected that 15 years from now it will be ice-free for 12 months of the year. That means that the real mega threat is diverting that cargo that moves much quicker. So all ports on the West Coast are in jeopardy, and uh, some will survive and others won't. You mean global warming is a greater threat than the Panama Canal expansion? <laughs> we, have, we have a couple of minutes left, and, and I just want our panelists to, to brainstorm about the future of these regions as major Pacific Rim trading centers, the future of these ports and versus competitiveness and operations, but just sort of your thoughts looking 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Whether... And, of course, that can be spelled several ways, L.A. and Long Beach, and then Seattle. Tom? I think the, the, the threats are, are real, um, but I'm, I'm optimistic. First, if we get the environmental equation right, and, and we're, we're testing it out here first, um, I think it's something that other ports in the U.S. are going to have to deal with. Everyone's looking at our models, Everyone's look, whether it's legislative or whether it's, it's sort of just directed by the ports. The other thing, at least in terms of L.A. and Long Beach, that I think will be interesting to observe is, is trade lanes and trade traffic going in the opposite direction. We're well positioned right now because of exports coming out of, of China and Asia, but that's a vast market. And there's going to be a lot of traffic going in the other direction as well, and we're equally well positioned for that as well. Right now, when, when you look at, at the shift of manufacturing patterns, Southeast China is becoming, in some cases, a little too expensive, and you're seeing more activity in northern China. Uh, you're seeing goods moving to manufacturing operations, moving to Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. Port at Ho Chi Minh it was, it was one of the, the largest growers last year. So I think that that's, that's a tremendous opportunity. i just add a couple of uh, things to that. Uh, one of the things that I think is going to be a driver in uh, the immediate and the distant future is what is the impact of increasing energy costs going to be on the ports? And from my perspective, when that Panama Canal opens in 2014, you're going to see TEO ships increase from seven to 8,000 TEUs per ship to 13,000 TEUs. It's going to force the shippers to use bigger ships. It's also going to force a change in the sailing routes so that you're going to get those ports that are a day and a half to three days closer to the origins of the product are going to benefit enormously because shippers are going to be trying to decrease the cost on their energy. Then I think that there's a lot that's unknown about the future, a lot that's unknown. <laughs> to me, very few things change in the port community or the maritime community. You got from wood hulls to iron. You got from wind power to diesel. You got from brake bulk to container. And everybody's waiting to see, what's the next big change? Some will bet and win, like Ben Nutter at Oakland did and Eldon Opheim at Seattle did. Others will bet and lose, like San Francisco did. So there are some imponderables out there. 
You've been listening to UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. Now we turn it over to the Sokolo audience. George Cunningham, I was just going to ask about the environmental programs at both the Puget Sound area and L.A. Long Beach. Puget Sound is a little behind, but they don't have nearly the environmental problems we have here because it rains all the time. I know that the folks up there are kind of almost gleeful about all the restrictions that L.A. Long Beach is putting on. If we're talking about L.A. Long Beach versus Seattle-Tacoma, is that a competitive edge for the Pacific Northwest? Well, it's very interesting that the CEO of the Port of Seattle, Teo Shitani, has argued that he wants to create the cleanest, greenest port in the country. And he's arguing it on business grounds that this is going to pay off handsomely in the attraction of cargo if you are clean and green. And the reason for that is that terminal operators don't have to fight as strongly for their interests and the implementation of such measures are easier to do. As you correctly point out, the problem is not as great in the Puget Sound as it is in San Pedro. You've just heard UCSD political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach. This is Sokolo Radio, the on-air home of the Sokolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Sokolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free events around town. For more information, go to SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O. LA.org. The executive producer for Sokolo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.